the book of Colossians. This is one of my favorite books in the scriptures because it's only four chapters long and it is packed with practical insight into Jesus and our own lives. Very similar to the book of Ephesians, Paul uses a lot of the same concepts and when looking for our responsibility in this relationship with God, Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3 go together about putting off the old and putting on the new. So it's a great book packed with theological insight. And what we know about this book is that Paul taught a man named Epaphras about Jesus. And Epaphras went back to his hometown of Colossae and began to minister, and a church started. But as was the case in many churches, a lot of false teaching crept in, some weird things. And so Paul wrote this letter to them, not ever coming to the church of Colossae, rather having a burden for them, understanding that, yeah, this new move of God in this city was under attack at the very beginning, just like it is everywhere. With every believer, when they come to Christ, all of a sudden it seems like they're inundated with all of this negativity and crazy stuff because the enemy does not want people to know the truth about God. He wants to keep people blind and deceived. That's how he can control them. So Paul, feeling the need as an apostle to write them a letter and at least give them some things to chew on for a bit, he writes the book of Colossians. So chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul was an apostle or one who was sent. That's what the word means. And he was sent by God to do a specific task. And he qualifies himself in this letter, just showing him, hey, I'm an apostle. I have the authority to teach about Jesus. And again, he never visited the church of Colossae, as far as we know. So his introduction is what he has. So he tells him, I am an apostle, not merely a disciple of Jesus. And he had been sent by the Lord himself. And Timothy was also with Paul at the time of his writing. Verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. A saint is someone who has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in them through faith in Jesus. And Jesus said, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to those who love him. In John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So that promise is for believers that the Holy Spirit will be in us when we make that jump from darkness to light through Jesus. True grace and peace comes from God, and these are available to the believer. It's not just a fancy introduction. It's something that is available to every believer. God's grace, that's that unmerited favor, getting what we don't deserve, and his peace, which comes through Christ. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now again, Paul did not take the gospel to the city. Rather, a man named Epaphras did. And Paul may never have been to the city in his life. And it appears he didn't know the believers there. However, by his own admission, he was thankful for them and the work God was doing through them. And he also prayed for them. And I think this is significant because Paul had a lot of responsibility in his calling. If he wasn't traveling from city to city, preaching the gospel and starting riots, he was sitting in a jail cell, writing letters and ministering to whoever he could. It appears Paul took prayer very seriously, and this small church was included in his prayers. And again, the book of Colossians and Ephesians, there's a lot of similar things there. But in Ephesians 6, Paul teaches about the spiritual battles that we as believers face continually and how to fight the battle. Serious prayer is a mighty weapon in the battle, and Paul was a man who prayed continually, lifting up whoever he could. And so we, as followers of Jesus, we need to understand and we need to be people who are praying constantly, or we're going to lose our edge in the battle. 
Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So here we see two things that Paul was thankful for, the Colossians' faith in Jesus and the fact that they were exercising that faith by loving the saints. This is huge because it's the very thing Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 37. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And this is an indicator that a person is right on track with God, loving God and loving others. If one or both of these things are absent in a person's life, that's not good. And that makes for a bad witness. But apparently the believers in Colossae, they were doing this. Verse 5, because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So the Colossians, they heard the gospel. They believed in the hope of Jesus, both here and eternity, and they hung on to it. And Paul adds the whole world was being affected by the gospel, and it's still being affected by the gospel. People are still coming to Christ. They are moving away from darkness, realizing this world is evil. As the Father draws them, they're answering that call, and they're coming to Christ. I just had a conversation yesterday with a buddy of mine who knows the spouse of a person I used to work with. And that spouse of the guy I worked with, she just came to Christ. It's still happening. It's still going on. There seems to be a mindset that, oh my God, the church is dying and everything's going down the toilet. And many of the churches have become very watered down and worthless in the spiritual battles of life. That's true. But God's still doing his work. The gospel still works. People are still coming to Christ and being delivered from darkness. Even in the midst of this dark age, we can find that light of God shining through his people. Verse 7, just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, verse 8, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So again, Paul's friend Epaphras is the one that delivered the gospel to this town. In the same way, we can be like Epaphras when we surrender to Jesus. He's going to use us to take his message to others. Others maybe include your family, your neighbors, people at work. But Epaphras was a faithful minister of Christ, and what an honor to have his name written in the scriptures as a faithful saint. That's a pretty cool feather in your cap. Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. When Paul hears the gospel has taken root in Colossae, they get down to business and pray specifically that the new believers may be filled with a knowledge and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And Daniel is an example of a man who was filled with knowledge and spiritual wisdom, Daniel 9.22. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So we see that that understanding and wisdom, they come from God. It's just not us developing. It's actually receiving from God that which he is building us up with. That is the knowledge of his will and the spiritual wisdom and understanding that he gives us. And you equip a believer with that, and you've got a solid follower of Jesus. So a word for us to be asking God, fill us with your knowledge of your will and spiritual wisdom. Verse 10, 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is why we seek the Lord and his wisdom, so we can walk in a manner that pleases him and we can be a blessing to him and others. Spiritual growth continues through the believer's life that brings us closer to the Lord to the point that even in our final years, we can still be racking up rewards in heaven for serving Jesus. I've met several elderly people well into their 80s and beyond that are still fighting the battle for Jesus. And this is really encouraging because even in their frail physical state, they are giants in the kingdom of God. They have increased their knowledge of God throughout their lives, making their final years a blessing to those around them. And then when it's their time to go, they're ushered into the kingdom and they receive all those rewards they have been earning all of their lives, trusting Jesus. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. With the knowledge of God comes the understanding that my strength has to come from the Lord. In Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I hear this verse quoted a lot when someone is going through a difficult season in their life. And the reality that Jesus can provide strength through the Holy Spirit when needed is something I believe few people actually trust in. But those who trust in Jesus, he gives us this strength routinely. And sometimes we don't even think we need it. And he still gives it to us to accomplish the work that he has called us to do. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We've been given the place at the Father's table. We are children of God who have an inheritance that is beyond our understanding. And that inheritance, even though it starts here and now, we know that this future inheritance in the life to come will be glorious. Matthew nineteen twenty nine. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Our hope is not limited to this life but it's going to be realized in the life to come. Verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Before we had this inheritance, we were in darkness, but He pulled us away from the darkness and into the light of His love where we must now remain or abide. And this is my story. When I read verses like this, I'm instantly reminded of the darkness I once craved and pursued. And when that darkness began to sweep over me like a large wave in the ocean, that's the point in my life where I walked into a church trying to figure out how do I get this darkness out of my life. I no longer wanted it because it had become so creepy that I wanted to rid my mind of all of it. The problem is, once you open a door to the devil, it doesn't shut. The only one that can shut that door that is open to the darkness is Jesus. And he closed that door for me and ultimately delivered me from the darkness and transferred me into the light of God's love. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are redeemed and forgiven. And this runs contrary to those who feel they are good enough for heaven without really knowing Jesus. And these will often believe that heaven is for good people and hell is for bad people, when in reality that's totally false. Heaven is for those who have been redeemed or purchased back from an unpayable debt of sin. We can't show up in heaven with all of our sin not paid for and expect to stay there. It doesn't work that way. Our sin must be taken out of the way in order to remain in the presence of God's holiness. And those who don't think that they're bad are totally deceived. We are all wicked by nature. But those who believe upon the Lord who have received salvation through faith have that redemption. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God 
the firstborn of all creation. And Paul now begins to address something that was being introduced into the church at Colossae, along with other churches in the region, and that is false teaching. People were teaching things that were contrary to the scriptures, and one of these heresies taught that Jesus was not a physical man, and he was not the creator. Verse 16, for by him, that's by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So not only did this heresy come in and affect the ancient world, it's still taught today. But Paul makes it clear that Jesus is eternal. He was present at the beginning, and through him all things were created. And for many people who are in the church, they don't believe this because they don't know Jesus. He is the creator God. In the beginning was God. He was God. That title belongs to him. In the beginning was God, theos, where we get our word theology from. Jesus created everything. That is an essential doctrine of the New Testament. And if we don't believe that, then how is his sacrifice sufficient? If he wasn't a perfect sacrifice, he was God in the flesh, the creator of all. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only was everything created by him, Paul states that Jesus also holds things together, which adds a little more depth to the notion that Jesus was simply a good moral teacher on earth who spread his influence through his teaching and lived a super moral life. The reality of Jesus when looked upon in the scriptures is one of unbelievable power. The first chapter of the book of Revelation gives us a look at the glorified Jesus and it's not warm and fuzzy. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus, being fully God, did put on flesh and dwell among his people. His birth was not his beginning, nor was his death the end. It was a parenthesis in his eternal role where he lives among his creation and died after living a life without sin. His death was the payment for our sin because we couldn't pay the debt and his risen and eternally glorified body became the first fruits of the dead. There were others raised from the dead throughout the scriptures, but that was a temporary resurrection. They would end up dying again. It was for a purpose. But Jesus was the first to die, rise from the dead, and enter eternity with a glorified body. Therefore, he's the preeminent one. Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The payment for our sin was satisfied by his sacrifice on the cross. Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. By his blood we are saved, meaning that sacrifice, the blood that was shed for us. Instead of our blood being shed, his was. Verse 21, And you who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So his death on the cross not only paid our penalty, but it also allows Jesus to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach. We get an undeserved, approved status before God. And we were indeed once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And anybody who thinks that they weren't is deceived. 
but he received us and he reconciled us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So now our part. Salvation's a free gift, but that doesn't mean life is a free ride. We have a lot of responsibility before God to live this life out as a witness for Him, trusting Him, relying on Him, believing in Him, following Him. Because He paid that penalty for our sin, we have now been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We need to remember that. We were bought with a price. We are owned. We are not our own any longer. We belong to the one who purchased us. The devil owned us before Jesus. That's kind of the natural default for humanity. You are spiritually owned and manipulated and deceived as an unbeliever without even knowing it. That's man's default spiritual condition to rely on our own understanding, do things in a manner that we think are right, and not realize we're blind. But when we're bought with the blood of Christ, we now have a new master. The devil is no longer the one pulling the strings. Jesus is, and he's a good master. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul's calling into ministry was a calling into suffering. Although Paul saw the hand of God move like few have, he suffered continually for Jesus, even to the point of death at the hand of the Roman emperor Nero. But Paul never complained about his suffering. Rather, he used his suffering to glorify God as he continued to suffer for the sake of the church, and he became an example of one who gave it all. Verse 25, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, there's a lot of mysteries in the New Testament. For example, Israel, the partial hardening in Romans 11:25, Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So that's a mystery. The Jews didn't realize that after Messiah was executed in Daniel chapter 9, that there was going to be this parenthesis in time where the Gentiles were coming into faith. But that fullness of the Gentiles has a time when it's going to stop, and that last seven-year period is going to continue and ultimately conclude with the coming of Christ. That was a mystery. So Israel is currently in this state of spiritual hardening toward God. The rapture of the church, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. And it goes on, talks about the church being caught up. The Gentiles are now part of the family of God. That was a mystery in Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that was scandalous to the Jews. They're like, there's no way the Gentiles, all these non-Jews coming into this relationship with God. But yet that was another mystery that yes, the Gentiles are now going to be a part of God's family through faith. And Christ and the church is a mystery. In Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So all of these things were mysteries. They were things that weren't revealed until the appropriate time. And so Paul here is saying this mystery that's been hidden from generations is now revealed to the saints. 
Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this new mystery is that Christ would actually dwell within the child of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that was something not foreseen nor foretold in the Old Testament. But the reality of Christ holds many things for the believer that are surprisingly amazing. And having the Holy Spirit actually dwelling within us makes us a temple where God would meet with his people. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And again, this verse, verse 20, you were bought with a price, so glorify God. That mystery that Christ is in us, this is a new move of God. The Holy Spirit is now moving through us, in us, empowering us to do the things that God has called us to do. It's pretty cool when you realize God's Spirit is in you, and you begin to trust in that. Verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And this is the Jesus that Paul knew and taught, the God-man who has reconciled to himself by his all-sufficient sacrifice and dragged us out of the power of darkness into his marvelous light. And Paul's desire is obviously not just to tell people about Jesus, but to spur them on into maturity in Christ, not just leaving them as infants where they're nursing on milk, but to give them solid food so they can grow and they too can take the gospel out and share it. Verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And men and women like Paul throughout history gave their all for advancing the gospel, and they deserve our respect. They are our examples who selflessly sacrificed so much for the cause of Christ. And in this world, in many cases, they received so little. But in the kingdom of God, we will see these mighty warriors of the faith, and we'll get to tell them how they encouraged us to serve our King and how they served as our examples. Thank you.